0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's b-a-h-a-i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Sharon Dixon Pei, a Baha'i who grew up in the Hartford, Connecticut area. When Sharon finished high school a year early, she went to Yale to study economics. She now works for the Connecticut State Treasurer's Office. In the interview, Sharon refers to the Baha'i Peace Statement. The document is entitled, The Promise of World Peace. I have the link to the statement on my website, abahaiperspective.com, under Sharon's interview. I started the interview by asking Sharon what was it like growing up in the Hartford area?
1: I grew up primarily in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. After spending the first six years of my life in Wiesbaden, Germany, my family settled here because this is where my grandmother lived at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So your parents grew up in this area?
1: No, actually all of my parents and... uh, uh, relatives are from North and South Carolina. My mother was born in North Carolina, and my father was born in South Carolina. So um, we have very southern roots, but that's very indicative of the population here in, in uh, Hartford in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of people that migrated up to this area.
0: I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you came back when you were six, you said, to Hartford? Came oh, you back. came to Hartford when you were six after came
1: to Hartford when i was six um, did you
0: learn any German while you were in german? well
1: yes as we, we we learned german because we had German babysitters and very much integrating the german um um culture to as much as u s mm. servicemen could be okay. um and we found uh, that the family acclimated very well to being in in that area, mm-hmm. we uh, went to school as limited as, you know, kindergartners, uh and I had uh, a sister born in Germany as well.
0: Uh-huh. So you have how many siblings?
1: I have two sisters.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. so you were an infant when you yes, moved to Germany? Went
1: over by boat <laughs> to Germany <laughs> with my mother and okay. uh, at uh, nine months old, so... I, I came back here when I was when I was six.
0: Okay. Do you remember anything about your first experiences coming back to the states after?
1: I remember name? it being quite interesting because I constantly heard people say that I talked funny and that sort of thing. But you remember? You remember? Know, I was in first gr- first grade, and we. Basically moved into the African-American community and had a very close-knit family. Many of my father's brothers and sisters lived in this area, so all of our celebrations and our entire life was pretty much um, revolving around family. So Mm. we got to know neighbors very well, and we eventually bought a house and moved into another section of Hartford Mm -hmm. where I went to school and attended... um, public schools, actually, until I went to high school, okay. and then went to school in Simsbury. And uh, uh, both of my sisters went to Catholic, uh, Catholic high school, grammar school and high school, actually. And so they have a, a different, different experience, but we've always been a very close-knit family, mm-hmm. and um, we've kind uh, of continued that by moving here to Windsor. There mm-hmm. are... We are all within walking distance of each other. Oh, that's great. In uh, Windsor. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's really kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I assume you grew up Catholic?
1: I grew up Baptist, actually. Okay.
0: Um, so why is it? Black how is missionary it that, Baptist. All right. So how is it your... Sisters, sisters with the Catholic and, yeah. school?
1: My family became familiar with the parochial schools because we lived... Within the neighborhood of a school called St. Justin's School, and many of the children in that area went to St. Justin's after spending a bit of time in the public school. When I left the public school, grammar school my sister was kind of left to her own devices and she was she was always much smaller than I was and so it was very difficult for her and they decided to move her to the Catholic school Mm. and then when my my youngest sister came along 10 years later it was Mm. something that they were very familiar with and decided to continue that trend in Mm. fact they both went to St. Justin's. They both went to Loomis-Chafee and graduated from there. And then they both went to Georgetown and graduated in accounting from Georgetown. <laughs> so I was a bit, oh, I was a bit different. But uh, <laughs> they uh, they had that, that kind of experience. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so well, I how was... How
0: far apart in age are those two? Well,
1: I have... Uh, my middle sister is... Uh, only 22 months younger than I am. And uh, then my youngest sister is 10 years younger.
0: Really? And yeah. those two just tracked each other right, right. through. Right, exactly. Isn't exactly. that interesting? Exactly. So Now, you implied that going to Simsbury it was a private school for you? Yes, a, it a was. I
1: actually had a very um, uh, strong advocate when I was in grammar school. Lillian Thomas was her name. Uh, and she insisted that my parents consider other schools than the public mm-hmm. schools for me saw something i 'm not sure i was always I was always in what I called guinea pig situations i 'd be in the classroom i think I was doing fine I was answering questions I was doing well, and they'd say okay you 're we're going to have you do something else. (laughs) And so then they'd have me doing testing of different curriculum or doing other kinds of science projects or being taken off to do something else, uh, either by myself or with three or four other kids. And so it was constantly like that. And she was involved in kind of creating opportunities for me as well as kind of being a friend. So Mm -hmm. when it came time to go to high school, she knew of a school in Simsbury, it was called Westridge School at that time, which basically was based on the premise that education was to be an encouraging environment for intellect, curiosity, and that the best econo- academic environment was one that was well-rounded. So we went to school in the mountains in our one of our phys ed classes was rock climbing yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> we had dance and we did theater and uh, mm. uh, and these were in high school mm. and um, we would take hikes and um, we had a very close knit community. It was a small school. I graduated with 60 kids mm. uh, and they were a mix of juniors and seniors because I graduated. I did high school in three years and so It created an environment for me to do a number of things she saw that was going to be important and so that's the school I went to Mm -hmm. of course I must say that we didn't follow her advice exactly we did go for one year to Northwest Catholic (laughs) which is the local parochial high school Mm -hmm. and It was an interesting experience to say the least. So that
0: was your first experience. That was my first experience with parochial schools. My sister
1: went to St. Justin's at the same time I went to Northwest Catholic, and uh, after about the fifth detention, it became clear that (laughs) this might be an interesting environment for me to be in.
0: Whereas before that, you were never getting into trouble. No, I was never getting into trouble. Interesting.
1: I, the, the, my only saving grace was making straight A's. So you <laughs> make straight A's and then you got to rebel us a little
0: bit. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> so give me trouble. an example of what would get you in trouble. In well, in a Catholic, Catholic school,
1: school, things that will get you in trouble is having your skirts too short. At that time, girls were not allowed to wear pants. You had to wear skirts and you had to wear knee socks or ankle socks with your regulation shoes. Well, mm-hmm. I was five foot six and I decided that it was ridiculous to wear knee socks. So I bought with my own money, mind you, tights, you know, stockings right, sure, that were sure not, not flesh color, but the color of the uniform, green tights. And so okay. all the freshman girls wore green tights. Well, they basically told Sister Doris Regan that Sharon was the one who told them to wear green tights.
0: (laughs) Oh, you started a revolution. (laughs) So that started...
1: I wound up having detentions, I think, for about three weeks for that. And then um, I was elected freshman class president, and there was an incident where... Sister Doris Regan decided that when she saw freshman girls who had their skirts too short, you were supposed to kneel, literally be on your knees, so that this would demonstrate how long the skirt was supposed to be. Well, there were about five or six girls together. When I was one of them, and I was not kneeling on the ground. I called it the ground. It was just <laughs> the floor. The floor and so right, yeah. That caused along with a couple of other things happening at the same time where i was not um i was not allowed to participate in spirit week <laughs> we had so much fun and so it was very interesting so she we kind of got around that but what she didn't realize is that I actually had an, a champion, and that's one of the things that's been very important uh, through the years, a, a champion here and there. And uh, my champion was uh, one of the uh, fathers and uh, one of the priests, and he was the person that was in charge of detention. I'm remembering it like it was yesterday. Wow. <laughs> and, uh So I'd come in, and he recognized pretty early on that there was this kind of disjoint between this person being in detention. Actually, when it came time to go to be a sophomore, um, I had more than enough credits, but Sister Doris Regan was being promoted to principal. And so... uh, the priest said to me during one of my many detention sessions, and and it got to the point where I would go because, you know, it was just kind of neat to talk to him, and um, he suggested that I investigate some other schools.
0: For <laughs> your own good. <laughs> <There might be. laughs> For your own happiness. He said, you know,
1: I just heard that sister is going to be principal, so... <laughs> you might you might consider some other opportunities, some things that you can do, some interesting things. He put it in a very nice way, but yeah. I got it. So I wound up going to Westledge and only spending another two years in high school mm. uh, doing coursework and doing, doing the, what I needed to do in order to get out.
0: So, did, did you uh, run into a person by the name of Charlie Gifford or Charles Gifford there? That name sounds very familiar. My father-in-law, actually, it's Jackie's stepfather, uh, who's
1: yes, Charles Gifford, definitely.
0: Yeah, he's absolutely. He's Jackie's stepfather.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: Jackie's father had passed away probably when Jackie was like mm-hmm. before we were married, mm-hmm. and she married remarried in 1975, and. I know Charlie was at Westledge.
1: That yes, he was. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I believe he wrote one of my recommendations.
0: Okay. To go
1: to Yale. So. All right. Okay. Well, I you know Westledge was in a very interesting school because we had no grades. What you had was a series of comments for your grades, and then scores on t- standardized tests. So. I realized very early on that it was very important to make sure that you get really good scores on those standardized tests, and the comments, obviously, was a mixture of subjective and people's personal feelings as well as just, you know, some objective review of what you've done. So um, th- I picked four people, I think it was, to write recommendations for me, and he was one of those.
0: Oh, really? So, I'll have yeah. to ask him about that. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you went to Yale? Yes.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. And what was that like?
1: It was very scary at first. I I was uh, identified early on as one of the younger of the class. And so (laughs) I get a lot of older brothers and sisters showing me the ropes. And (laughs) I uh, was not necessarily as sure of myself as I was in high school. And it was a very interesting kind of experience. But I found, found some things that I could be involved in, and basically challenged myself mm-hmm. to investigate some things that I had never heard about before. So I wound up as an economics major. Interesting. And uh, So
0: how did you find economics?
1: I found it absolutely fascinating. I found it to be, for me, like a language, like learning French. And I found the interesting thing for me would be able to explain it to other people. So being able to speak French and then being able to teach French. Mm-hmm. So being able to speak economics or lo- know economics and then being able to teach other people. So, um, And I also found an interesting mix between African-American studies and economics. Uh, one of the things that I did not know at that time that I know now... Is my investigation was kind of the result of needing to answer certain kinds of questions and I found that that need to answer certain kinds of questions continued to sustain me throughout my academic career so um, it was it was challenging it was really wonderful in that all the resources that you could possibly need and things that you didn't even know were available Mm-hmm. were available there. So mm-hmm. I came from a very cocooned uh experience where I was the first to go to college at all and being in that environment was f- really phenomenal. So mm-hmm. I'm sure I did not take advantage of all of the experiences to the same level but mm-hmm. even to today I can I think about the fact that that's my academic background mm-hmm. and am Galvanized by that. Yeah. So it almost is, it's, it's almost a responsibility.
0: So. What were the questions that you were trying to. Find I was trying to.
1: Some of the questions were more of inquiries and why certain things happen the way they did and what makes people do the kinds of things that they do. I became very interested in this idea of being very talented and making contribution and at the same time living a solid kind of life. So I became very interested in kind of this that duality to a certain extent mm-hmm. where you know, many women were either forced into a situation of making choices or they either killed themselves trying to be everything that they had to be. The other thing was very important to me is the kind of different layers of society that in fact the African religion African religious societies African social societies that existed in Philadelphia that actually sustained large communities for many many years and still still have an interesting legacy in some of the organizations that came out of them they were the kind of Mechanism for people to have not only economic security to a limited extent, I mean, if you worked or if you were free, you could, or if you were not, you could do something else. But these societies actually were kind of reflections of the broader society. There were people who had power. There were people who just received aid. There were people who gave aid. There were people that had positions of authority over others. There were people that this was the only place where they could stand upright and really make a contribution. There was a very interesting reliance on God. At the same time, a kind of understanding that there had to be some sort of work or industry and along with that kind of a third pillar this social interaction that galvanized people and, and kept people together and mm-hmm. and gave people reasons for living in and doing various kinds of things mm-hmm. there's an interconnection in all of that and I attempted to in my senior thesis to describe the impact of these kinds of societies and the fact that many African Americans still belong to different kinds of societies like this in different forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the impact of that on on the economic stability of those communities. Actually while I was at Yale, I did an internship at uh, the Connecticut State Treasurer's Office. First, oh. First intern you I was. <laughs> <laughs> the, and uh, The
0: first intern for the uh, Connecticut office? Connecticut
1: State Treasurer's Office, yeah. Very yeah. Nice. So mm-hmm. I That's actually cool. learned about all the different departments, and I worked on the uh, investment area and some of the projects that they had in terms of um, compiling information and updating policy manuals and things like that, basically following directions but being a sp- pair of hands like interns are supposed sure, to do. Sure. So uh, it was very interesting. That's and good. I actually stayed um, stayed and did that for an extra three months. So it was very interesting. Then I went back to Yale. That was during, that was between my sophomore and junior year. Went back to Yale, and then the next internship I did was at Chase Manhattan Bank. Mm. And upon graduation, I went there first and did their credit training program. And then continued in banking. And after leaving there, moved back to Hartford and got married and worked for banks and then moved to um, Bridgeport. Mm. I was actually at a parade in Hartford when I ran into someone that I s- had met or not met but knew of at, at as a branch manager and maintain that connection when I moved to Bridgeport and that was a community that I became acquainted with more and more was very very good to be involved with while I was doing that
0: what community was that
1: this was the Baha'is I moved to Bridgeport to take a job in mortgage banking and I was completely by myself in this whole new place Uh, which was not terribly strange but by complete, being completely by myself was a very interesting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found myself spending more and more time with this with this community. With the Baha'i
0: community in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you got to know this branch manager... Uh, no,
1: I was a branch manager. They were a person that I actually had thrown out of the bank. <laughs>
0: I, well, saw, well, we won't give any names
1: here. I had, uh, I, I actually, I was. We were very concerned, and and had the security people, squirt them out. So and he was a boy. I don't believe that he was at that point.
0: But how did you? Okay, so how did you make the connection? Well, what with happened
1: the bi? was, what happened was, I saw him at this parade, and he said hello, and uh, I didn't recognize him at first, and and he just looked at me and in a very kind of incredulous kind of voice i said what happened to you because he literally looked renewed really like physically renewed and he said baha'u'llah
0: who is the prophet founder of the baha'i faith right
1: and i was like who (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) So um, it was it was uh, startling for me because I was not looking for anything. Mm
0: -hmm. I was not. Were you going to church or anything like that at the time?
1: As a matter of fact, I was very much involved in Baptist church. At that time, I was in the missionaries, senior missionaries. As a matter of fact, black missionary Baptist. No, uh, the, the denomination is Black Missionary Baptist Church, and I'd been Sunday school teacher. I'd been junior missionary, intermediate missionary, senior missionary. Oh wow. So you were <laughs> serious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was um I didn't really do ushering and nursing and all that kind of stuff, but anything having to do with Sunday school and and kids and stuff like that. Well now what's a, unique
0: about this denomination? It's just that it's Baptist. So these various levels of missionary is just this
1: is, well, the name, the, the the differentiation is the name of the convention that the churches belong
0: to. Oh, so you were naming different denominations?
1: No. The name of the convention that our church belonged to was Missionary Baptist. Okay. And so, it's an African American church, so that's what it is, Black Missionary Baptist. And so we were with the Southern Convention and so that's kind of that's the denomination. Right. Um, throughout, the, um, the Baptists are associated with various conventions.
0: American mm. Baptists, etc. But you mentioned something about I was a first missionary and then second. Oh,
1: I... oh, that's um, that's like. Um, let's see, what would be a comparable thing? Um, well, it, it's like if you are up to age ten or so, you're a junior missionary and you would do various service projects and we had various things that we did all year long. We had a Mother's Day tea, for example, um, and we would visit nursing homes and we would do, you would do missionary work. And um, we had people that, the senior missionaries that were people that did the work with this youth group. It's like a youth group in a, in a church. So that's that's what we did. I was part of the choir as well, and so there was a junior choir, and then there was an intermediate choir, and then there was a senior choir. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so that's what that's what that is. It's mm-hmm. instead of instead of being with the choir folks and singing, I was. Doing missionary work with the missionaries, uh, and so junior missionary, and then intermediate missionary, I was um, in during teenage. And I actually would come back from school to participate in some of the events mm. and things like that because this mm. was this was my home church. My grandmother was very much a part of this this church and my family mm. and everything. So, right.
0: <laughs> and when you were in Bridgeport, you were going to this church as well? Yeah, I okay. was
1: driving back home. Oh, you really? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. I was driving so, back home to come go to
0: church. That's a couple of hours, right? What uh, About an hour and a half. I could do
1: it in an hour and a <laughs> half. I could do it in an hour, actually, on a good day. <laughs>
0: okay. But at the same time, you were sort of investigating this Baha'i thing?
1: Well, what happened was I was invited to go to a he said a get together to find out about the faith and wasn't doing anything so and the, he, he said something about picking me up i said no that's all right so i followed in my car and uh, went and walked into the house of of this absolutely phenomenal family with all of their children's pictures all over the wall and everything it was just warm and loving and actually up to that up to that day, except for my neighborhood friends that I played in the neighborhood with from a child, I had never walked into the home of people who were n- white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, the home, I work with people, and I have friends, acquaintances, but not walked in into home. the home of. So. Um, being welcomed and and whatnot I said this is I'm not sure what this is, but this is something that I, at least I can be around, and I would not mind having my son be around as well mm-hmm. oh that's right in in the meantime, I got married <laughs> <Not yet. laughs> and, and had one son uh-huh. had uh-huh. so yeah. um, so it was interesting it was yeah. interesting listening to some of the um, uh discussions. Uh, From time to time, I I didn't spend a lot of time because I was embarking on a new career, so I didn't have a lot of time. But um, I um, would ask a particular question and a book would appear. (laughs) It was just, okay, got a book for that. And so... um, I actually was living in New Haven and working in New, in, in uh, Bridgeport. So mm-hmm. I got acquainted with Bridgeport people and then I also got acquainted with New Haven people mm-hmm. uh, because, as I said, I'd mentioned something and, and, and there were different things going on all the time. So I found out about the concept of a co-op because some of the people worked at co-ops. Oh. I was like, oh, okay. I had never had that kind of firsthand experience and I understood what that was. And, mm-hmm. and so this was about... 1985, and the woman whose house that I'd gone to called me up and said, you know, you really need to meet this woman that's in your area. And she said, I'm going to connect you. I said, fine. It took about five or six different attempts, but uh, finally, she called, and I'll never forget her. Cornelia, vet, she, had the, she had just this warmth that even came through the telephone, and I said, mm. you know, this is this is really something. Isn't this something? And so I said to myself, hmm, I better think about this. I better think about what this really means because these are interesting interesting people and I was beginning to see some lives that seemed to be very attractive and I was saying to myself, you know, I've got to raise a son. That needs to have some facility with all kinds of people,
0: and you and didn't feel that the the church could provide that.
1: I came. I was in a very homogeneous env- environment. I mean, I everything I did was around family. Which, I mean, that's the way I grew up. I re- was uh, very sheltered, and realized it when I got to Yale, but realized it even more after, and so it was not something I wanted to continue in terms of in terms of a life experience. I felt like I couldn't be who I thought I'd like to become by not having grown in that manner. But it's very hard to do, and it's very mm-hmm. difficult to trust people, and people have different motivations and all kinds of things. So it was something that... Would be difficult if, in fact, I had not met the Baha'is, basically.
0: Yeah.
1: I was at the same time impressed with the idea of progressive revelation.
0: Now explain that quickly What that is
1: That that basically means It goes back to One of those spirituals That says God didn't bring me this far Just to leave me um, I always believed that and my, See I grew up With a grandmother Who had a walk around Type of faith You know You weren't always Kneeling and praying You were doing things For people And you were trusting That God's protection And love would surround you And when Things were difficult You were relying upon God So I mean I heard that in the of Vakmad one of the one of the tablets one of the prayers and I was like whoa okay this is nothing to be just kind of dabbling with let's look at this a little bit further mm. it basically says that i don't have to think that if you are hindu or buddhist or zoroastrian or jewish that you don't believe in God and it basically says that mankind is is made to be part of an ever advancing civilization that will continue to progress and that that's ordained so you can imagine when this wonderful woman Cornelia called me up and she said you have to come and hear about the peace statement now this is about maybe Maybe six months or so after kind of hearing. I mean, I'm talking about between the parade mm-hmm. in, say, July, August to October, right? Mm-hmm. Where all kinds of things were going on, and mm-hmm. I was investigating and talking, meeting people, and, you know, dealing with my son and everything. And she said, You absolutely have to come to this. And I said, Well, I'm working, and it, yeah, you must come. And it's going to be very convenient. It's right off the hype. It's just, you must come. It's at the Howard Johnsons. And it was just, you just have to come. So I said, okay, I might be a little bit late, but. And so she said, no worries. Just come. Don't worry about that. Just come. So sure enough, I came, walked into the room. And it was this very mixed group of people. I seem to remember that there were about maybe 12, 14. Um, I think she tells me now that there were maybe only six, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we came in, and this was the, uh, the end of October, and this statement had just came out, and we started reading it. Now, can you give me a little bit back background on the statement? The peace statement is a statement written by the Universal House of Justice. Which is the it's, the... it's the body that is in charge and responsible for the kind of affairs of the faith going forward. Okay. You know, I mean, Catholics have someone in charge of the affairs of the faith. You know, Muslims have someone in charge of the affairs of the faith. The Baha'is, it's the Universal House of Justice. And it's part of a whole social order, which starts with the something called a local spiritual assembly you know, because locally Catholics have someone that's in charge of the affairs of the faith Muslims have someone in charge of the Baha'is have someone in charge of the affairs of the faith and the affairs of the faith are governed by a group of nine people and so those local spiritual assemblies actually are the kind of the foundation of the whole of of the whole social structure of the faith Mm -hmm. and then there are regional councils uh, which are elected all in the same way um, by no politicking or anything like that by the whole regions that are set up all over the country and this is worldwide and then there is a national spiritual assembly and it's elected through a system of delegates and each and the National Spiritual Assemblies all come together from around the world and elect the Universal House of Justice. So, once again, it's a whole social structure. It's very beautifully outlined kind of thing and it relies on people. It relies on you and I actively engaging in the faith. Mm. It's, it's just absolutely phenomenal. So, they produced the statement. They produced this statement, and this statement was written at a time when people were kind of hopeless, and I know I felt that way, and there was no reason for me to have to feel that way. We had a good, strong religious background and excellent academic career, um, background. Um, skills and talents, and uh, I was working in banking where I was very happy. There was a nice meld between economics and dealing with people. I mean, I could spend all day just talking to people about balancing their checkbooks and, and doing budgeting and everything else, but then also step back and think about, well, the growth of my branch and what that means in this community, and, you know, I was on several boards. I was doing all kinds of things. I had a house, a husband, and a beautiful baby boy. So, Hopeless. Why was I hopeless? Why was I feeling the sense of despair? Well, the peace statement basically said, understand that peace is inevitable, whether by strife or war or by the peaceful consultation of mankind. Peace is inevitable. I felt a real sense of uh, I knew it all the time but now here it was it was written down it and the peace statement is laid out in such a way that kind of it kind of talks about kind of how we got to where we are now but understand peace is inevitable in the midst of all of that peace is inevitable understand that things may get worse before they get quote unquote better But understand that peace for mankind is inevitable Mm. i was just blown away i just Mm. could not and we read the whole statement now of course when i talk to other people (laughs) about their review of the peace statement they say that they went through a couple of paragraphs Mm -hmm. and everything we read the whole statement and i was mesmerized the whole time Mm. i just i've read it several times since then and every time I read it I have a renewed sense of hope and the other thing was I felt like it was important to be a part of working for this that if this was the bunch leading this group and this is their understanding of what we're supposed to be doing then this might be something I need to investigate and the thing that was so absolutely beautiful for me is that I'd already fallen in love with the prayers The prayers of the Bob were now the Bob is the Bob came first. 1844, he declared his mission, and that kind of coincides to various other things in a kind of mystical Mm. way. But um, he had a very short mission um, and was uh, basically executed. And the Bob had a set of laws and a number of things uh, put in place. Bahá'u'lláh was given the mantle, basically. Um, that's the way I understand it. And other people might understand it differently, but basically, these twin manifestations of God, you know, like Jesus, and so these two were like that, um, and they provided the 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 stuff that the Bahá'í Faith is is made of, and the tablets. Are basically writings. Uh, d- for lack of a better word, Baha'i scripture um, is in the form of various tablets. Much like, much like the Bible, the Bible is various books, and mm. tablet, book, same thing. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: I guess the Bab and Baha'u'llah had revealed prayers, and these, yes. these touched your. Yes, heart. absolutely. I
1: see. Uh, to the point where you know, I was reading them to my son to, for him to go to sleep. And things were sometimes very confusing and very difficult, Um, as you can imagine, uh, if you're working in finance and you are an African-American woman, you tend to have a few experiences that test your resolve. And so that was actually a very good way to put that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, so- <laughs> and we got it down on tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so,
1: so when tested, I began to find myself relying on the prayers. Now, interestingly enough, I knew how to pray, knew how to meditate, had been doing that for a long time. But there were parts of my religious experience up to that point that I couldn't gel. And so this gelled. And I found myself, found myself saying, "Okay, now how in the world am I going to explain this to my family?" Mm. And then I, I, uh, I remember saying to myself, "How am I going to explain this to my family?" And then I said, oh, "You believe this, don't you?" And kind of surprised myself. And he had to tuck that away for a while because you're like, "Whoa, hooey! This is uh this is not." you know just another project this is different this is different so I had to think about that for a little while all of that had kind of taken place a little bit and I say a little bit because we're not talking about a very long period of time mm. but a little bit in terms of you know I've never been a sleeper and so you know things keep you up nights and this is one of the things that kept me up nights but I was kind of continuing on and then this whole thing of the peace statement well I declared that night
0: That's when you committed to being a Baha'i?
1: Yes. Yes,
0: absolutely. And how many years ago was that? That was
1: 1985.
0: How would you say the Baha'i faith changed the way your life went?
1: I firmly believe that if I was not a Baha'i, I would have found outlets for service that may or may not have been as satisfying in terms of this feeling of this is where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I had long had an, had this feeling of preparation for something. To know what. Mm-hmm. This feeling of, you know, you really have to, you have to learn this stuff. You have to know this stuff because mm-hmm. you don't know what you're what's going to happen or where you're going to be or what you're going to need. Um and I've always I've been more of a studier. I th- I think I'm not smart. I'm a studier, mm. and so I found myself feeling this kind of energy, that kind of kind of comp- propels you forward. But it was always this kind of searching for what I'm supposed to be doing. I also had a great deal of anger about what I felt was a plight of women, I guess, and me because I was. A woman. I am a woman. So.
0: So you saw the injustice.
1: Well, it, it was kind of more than injustice. It was just kind of, kind of immorality. It was like it was this sense of, why am I judged on someone else's scale, just because of what I look like, or sound like, or what my sensibilities are? Is not a rose beautiful supposed to be there, and a rose. Why should it necessarily have to be defined in any other way? It doesn't. So why should I? Why do I have to conform to what other people's ideas or things are? I've had to learn since that everyone has that sense of I just want to be able to be who I am and sometimes our being who we are doesn't always mesh but we have to learn how to talk to each other and I think that's one of the things that would have been difficult for me without having found the faith. Interestingly enough all throughout my life I found as I've gone back to talk to people I was around people who were familiar with and influenced by the faith they either had very very good friends that were baha'is they attended quite a few baha'i events and participated in them and i had no idea of that at all i'd never heard the word baha'u'llah until that day in august wow i think my way of handling issues and way of and handling problems would have remained from a place of anger more so than where I think I am at this point. Mm. Being as continues to be challenging, but I think in a good way. The other thing, is, I think what I want to say is that I am constantly, constantly reminded that these are the early days of the faith, mm. that at this point in Christianity, I feel like I know what it' meant for those people who were believing in Christ at this point in Christianity, because you all, you have to cling to other Baha'is in a way that you perhaps would not necessarily have you know formed friendships or attachments, I guess, in in my church. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there were some really good friends that 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 I had, but there were a lot of people that I just knew, that just knew me, and that would f- see me anywhere else and say, "Oh, that's that's Bill Dixon's daughter," <laughs> you know, because you know, that's uh, that's their only point of reference, right? Exactly, and they would feel familiar because they just know me that way. Baha'is, we don't have the luxury of being that way by virtue of the fact that many times we're serving together, we get to know each other in a different way. And I find myself many times sitting next to very sweet people that allow me to see a bit of their lives. And it's just so precious. It mm. really is. Mm. And then the things I get to do, I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's phenomenal. I mean, I, uh, I one great example is I found myself... Uh, filling out a paper paper to be a part of choir with uh, the World Congress.
0: Now, what's the World Congress?
1: The World Congress happened in 1992, and it was a gathering, the second gathering, of Baha'is from around the world. And over 30,000 Baha'is came to New York City, basically celebrated the Baha'i faith uh, at that point. And... It was a phenomenal experience, and and we were at a camp, and a woman who at that time was, was dying of cancer, actually, heard us singing in one of the sessions of our little camp and said, you know, you guys should fill out that part of the World Congress. And, you know, none of us realized that she wouldn't get to World Congress I'll never forget it. And Rita said, you guys got to fill. There were forms, and we filled them out, and we checked off that we wanted to do this choir thing. And we actually then formed our own little Connecticut Chorale. You had to make a tape. We helped each other make tapes. I mean, it was just (laughs) mind-boggling. And then I found myself in this whole world of people who sing and play music, the 400-piece orchestra. Where we were standing around, they hit the first few notes of one of the songs and were sobbing because they had never heard the whole thing altogether. It was just it was just phenomenal and we took our stuff on the train and all went to New York and stayed in one of the most unrenovated hotels, <laughs> probably in New York, but we didn't care it was just phenomenal so and since then, I have been. On tour to Europe twice, I've recorded in Slovakia with uh, the Slovakian Orchestra, and I've even sung in Carnegie Hall. Mm. So, I mean, it's like, what's not to love here? (laughs) I at this at the same time, one of the things that I loved when I was Baptist was uh, Sunday school, and so I became a trainer for core curriculum. The Bridges. core curriculum for the education of Baha'i children is a series of lessons that basically teach children the faith, much like you have catechism in Catholics, you have Sunday school in Baptist, you have... <laughs>
0: children's classes in high school That's right, okay. that's right,
1: children's classes and core curriculum So I did that for, for many years And now I'm involved with uh, the Baha'i Center Assistance Which is um agency of the uh, National Spiritual Assembly To uh, help communities establish Baha'i centers throughout the country
0: Interesting, because I'll be interviewing Sarah Page in a couple of weeks oh, cool. oh, Are <laughs> you? So wonderful. we got this connection here My dear sister, my dear sister yeah.
1: We live what two hours from each other, an hour and a half from each other, or something, mm-hmm. and never met before being involved. You and Sarah, yeah. yeah, and now I consider her like one of my sisters. So. That's sweet. Yeah. So.
0: Well, Sharon, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Your-
1: you had me running on and on and on.
0: No, it's great.
1: <laughs> thank you again. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed the interview with Sharon Dixon Pay, a Baha'i from the Hartford, Connecticut area, who works for the Connecticut State Treasurer's Office. In the interview, Sharon referred to the Baha'i Peace Statement. The document is entitled The Promise of World Peace. I have the link to the statement on my website, bahaiperspective.com. if you're interested. You can also go to abahaiperspective.com for a copy of this and other interviews. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time. On a Baha'i Perspective. Our soloist on this song is Sean Gilmer.